Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, tonight, we're excited to welcome back Monty Schultz. He's this is the third time he's been back for the third book, I believe. Um, this is the third part of his epic novel, and this one's called The Big Town. Please welcome Monty Schultz. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, I was looking for, I really wanted to uh, come down here and talk about this book because uh, I just finished editing it last year. And I was totally enraptured with the book. And then I had to do the tour for Last Rose of Summer, a book I hadn't really worked on or read in two years. And it's a women's novel. Didn't interest me as much for some reason. <laughs> I really liked it. It was a really pretty book. But it, it's just, it was hard to know what to say about it because um, it's a women's novel. It's about love and relationships in East Texas, 1929. Um, a really pretty book. Uh, but it's hard to read from because the... To, to read at a book signing, you have to have scenes that are sort of uh, self-sustaining, um, have a little story arc to them, and uh, are not too long. So the last year of summer had none of those. Oh. Yeah, that's right. That, you know, yeah, so I had some really good here. Can you hold it? Oh, I'll turn off the phone, too. Um, the, yeah, the scenes are too long, and, or, right, I had a three really great scenes, all of which gave plot elements away. So yeah, I can't read that, I can't read that, I can't read that. I had a great big tornado at the end of the book, couldn't read that, it was too long. And plus it gave away the tornado. So uh, I was basically depressed and I was, I just felt, I, I felt I was on a death march during the tour for that book. Uh, whereas for the first book, This Side of Jordan, I had lots of things to read, I really liked it. It was the first one of the books to come out, so it was exciting. So anyhow, I've been waiting for a really long time to read from the Big Town because the opening chapter of this book was the first chapter I ever wrote in this book back in 1991. So uh, I was really, I knew a lot about this book and there's tons of th things to read from it. But it, this book is kind of complicated because, all right, it's set in the summer of 1929. This whole thousand page book I wrote, and I divided it into three books. Um, and, and part of it is set in the city. The whole book is 60% uh, rural, one of the books, This Side of Jordan, takes place in some towns in the Midwest. Uh, Last Rose Summer takes place in East Texas, a small town, and this takes place in the city. And those books, uh, those two books together are about 600 pages, and this is about 400. So 60-40, and that was the population uh, divide in America in 1929, roughly 60% rural, 40% city. Um, and so the other thing is that the other books are 20s books, but 
people want a 20s book and they want the jazz age stuff and they want speakeasies, they want some gangsters and some shootings and uh, so I have all of that in this book. <laughs> I have tons of stuff in this book. Uh, in fact, I had one friend read this book a couple years ago and he, in the manuscript he said, uh, you know, the only problem with Monty's is, is too much happens. Uh, I said, buddy, too much can never happen. <laughs> what are you talking about? Does too much happen? No, it was good. Lots, lots of interesting things happened. So, um, but the book is, it's, it's a philosophical book. It's a plot and a character. That's all fine. Stuff happens. But it's also about the city and it's about American life. It's about the republic. It's about the idea of American society. Um, so it's a bigger book than just the story. And it's funny because most people who've been reading this book and reviewers just pay attention to my main character and some girl he meets. That's the whole story. Them. They don't clearly do not understand the rest of the book, and and of course the reviewers. It's easy for me to see since I know the book that they didn't read very much of the book, quoted from the flap copy. One reviewer said uh, talked about the book being in Chicago. It's not Chicago. It's not New York. It's an archetypal American city. It's not any city. And in fact, my character says he talks three times about going to Chicago, having gone to Chicago, which he wouldn't if it's set in Chicago. Very careful reading by the reviewer, right? Thank you very not. <laughs> right? <laughs> For your careful reading of my book. Whatever. <laughs> okay. So, um, but, notwithstanding, uh, I am very proud of what I wrote in this book. Um, this book is way smarter than I am. It's hard for me to explain things about what the book is really about. Um, I mean, I can. But I read whole sections of it. I don't remember writing. Um, the thing I'm going to read to you, first thing I'm going to read, uh, I want to tell you I wrote it in one time through. One pass, first draft, essentially. Just probably just a couple words. Okay. One of those miraculous things that happened. Um, and we had a, I had a writer's workshop up in my house uh, last weekend. And, and uh, one of the discussions for one of the writers was how to, how to freight to the reader philosophical elements without sounding preachy. And so this is a way I did it in my book. It's kind of funny because had I, Nicole here pointed out uh, to tell Mac about it. It's Mac Talley, a friend of ours, writer. Um, and, and she pointed out that it was in this, in this scene would have done it for it. But, so I'm going to read you two things from this book. I really like them both. Um, this, scene, this thing, again, I wrote straight through in one pass, and then I'll introduce the other thing to you because it's, it has a much longer story, much longer genesis. Okay, so this is sort of, this, the two things encapsulate the story element of the book, uh, storytelling, which is always part, a good part of books, okay, and then the philosophical element, which does not happen very often in fiction, okay. Um, so my character, main character in this book is a guy named Harry Hennessy. He's a businessman. And he, he's a downturn in, in fortunes just in the spring of 1929 has caused him to sell his family's house in uh, Illinois and send his, his wife and children down to his mother's house in East Texas where the last row of the summer takes place. So it's husband and one wife and the other. And so he goes to the city, the metropolis, to make his fortune. And so he's, this is about somewhere near the middle of the book. And he's talking about labor and, and the purpose of uh, work in society and what's important. And so I have this little thing here. Um, okay. One cold autumn evening at Milwaukee about eight years ago. This is a book set in 1929. About eight years ago. 
Perry was asked by a fellow salesman named Bill Dunbar to go with him to a spirited IWW meeting. There may be 20 or 30 men, roughly Harry's age, gathered in a small hall decked out with slogans such as, when labor hangs by the neck, liberty hangs in the balance. And America, where labor is strong and valiant and beautiful. Harry took a seat in the middle of the hall expecting to hear how much better his life would be in Soviet Russia, or that salesmen like himself were dupes of capitalist greed. And he did seem hear some of that, of course, and would have been disappointed if he hadn't. But an hour or so into the meeting, his friend Bill Dunbar went up to the podium and began arguing that each one of us plays the role of victim and oppressor from time to time. It's as naturally explained, as he explained, as watching rain fall from the sky. We feel within our rights to complain when it rains too much or too little, but does that sort of rebellion get us anywhere? There are laws guiding our behavior that were established long before Noah built his ark. Unfortunately, we can't seem to face a few simple facts about how the world is meant to be organized. In Bill's whole household, for example, labor was divided among himself, his wife June, and his three teenage sons. Being husband and father, Dunbar explained, he was naturally expected to bring home a paycheck substantial enough to allow June to buy groceries at the A&P every Thursday morning while his wife's duties involved shopping, cooking meals, and keeping their wonderful home neat and tidy. As the Dunbar boys have grown up, they've been taught to have their rooms clean, trim the hedges, take out the garbage, and keep the family dog fed and brushed. Whether the division of labor was equitable or not, this was how the Dunbar clan succeeded. Certainly, he and his wife bickered every once in a while over what amount of money they ought to risk in the market, or whether or not their old Ford was worth replacing, or if the dining room needed new curtains. Most choices were made by putting both their heads together and arriving at a sensible decision, but Bill was the head of the household, and always would be. June had no dispute with that, nor did their sons who understood that someone always had to have the last word, and he was that person whose responsibilities were the greatest. If I lose my job tomorrow, Dunbar told the Hall, my family knows we'll be out in the street and nothing flat. Likewise, if Henry Ford loses his shirt and his auto company goes under, a lot of fellows in Dearborn will be out of a job too, maybe for good. But if those thousands of auto workers walk out on him, he can't drum up, and he can't drum up anyone competent enough to take their places, he'll lose his shirt just the same. And if June decides I spend too much of my time speaking at meetings like this or having a drink on Wednesdays after work in the storeroom at Whitworth and she takes her boys to her mother's house in Beaver Falls while I'll be just as bad off as Henry Ford. I can't sew and my cooking stinks and I doubt Mr. Ford can assemble one of those shiny new automobiles by himself. You see, a man's household and his country work best when everyone works together, respectful of what each of us puts into the pot. We have floods in Idaho and drought in Kansas, and we can't switch places no matter what the communists might say. We just cannot share everything equally, nor are we meant to. Certain laws have come down to us from the blue skies above, and we succeed when we recognize those laws for what they are and adapt to them as best we can. This is the simplest explanation as to why things have come to be as they are. Once the meeting let out, Bill Dunbar drove Harry back across town through a thin snowfall to a frame boarding house where they'd hired a second floor rooms together to save a couple of dollars. Using the wash basin while Harry sat in bed trying to read, Dunbar said that the biggest trouble labor has these days is persecution, and he didn't mean the Palmer raids. Give two men a pair of shovels and tell them each to dig a hole four feet deep. Let them know that whoever finishes first will earn six dollars. Once they're both finished, the loser will likely, likely complain that the other fellow had some sort of advantage with his shovel or the quality of dirt he was digging in. Either way, he'll hate that fellow's guts for having beaten him. Ask the winner if he chooses pal to help dig a ditch for $12 and he'd tell you'd rather hire someone with more spunk. Pay them both equally and you'll see how the loser will be happy while the winner will ask himself why he bothered to work so hard. 
This might seem hard for you to understand, Hennessy, but I lied to all those fellows at the meeting tonight. Where's my place? The anarchist doesn't throw his bombs because of failures he's suffered. He throws them because he's had to suffer the success of others. People hate each other whether they're treated equally or not. Worse yet, they resent the fellow who hires them unless he pays the highest wage for the least amount of work. Envy drives the world, Hennessy, not hunger. Harry put down his book. I don't believe that, he told Dunbar, because it would mean no one values work at all, and that's just not so. In fact, it's contrary to human nature. Some of us want to succeed no matter what the other fellow does. We may well be persecuted for our efforts, but we're certainly not the least interested in bothering with, much less persecuting, those who strike it rich or fall off the track of their own accord. Bill Dunbar finished splashing water on his face, then toweled off and sat down on the bed. Well, that's just, that's just where you're playing wrong, he told Harry, and I, but I can't prove it to you tonight. You're too stubborn to hear me out, and we've got a train at six in the morning. All I can tell you is that one day you'll see that none of us are ever good enough to each other. It's just not our instinct, whether we pretend to dream it or not. We all have too much ambition. Okay, so that's sort of the philosophical idea of the book. Okay, it's, the, it's this idea of trying to find your place in society, trying to see where you ought to be. In the, in the turn of the last century, uh, their psychology was a subset of philosophy. Today, we hear the slogan all the time how we have to improve ourselves before we can improve the world. But they didn't believe that back then. They believed that, that uh, we have uh, uh, a debt to society, we have a place in society, we are not uh, islands, we're not uh, self-contained, we all belong, and society only works with all of us. And so people would, would try to be better members of society. They belonged to the, they took pride in the notion of the republic. They took pride in the notion of a government um, because they understand that we're not, a, we're not anarchists, we're not uh, living the law of the jungle, and we all have a place. And we're supposed to, we can have ambition, but uh, the ambition should, not, ambition should not supersede our morality and our ethics and, uh, and the needs of the country as well. So, that's one of the struggles Harry, the character Harry uh, um, undergoes as he has this passage to the big town. Okay, he's being pulled in all different directions. Moral issues, moral issues. He's married, but he's had affairs. He is not going to have any more affairs when he comes to the city, but he meets a young girl who uh, lures, tries to lure him she falls in love with him. How does he, how does he react? He's, he's got kids at home. He's supposed to have, have a job. The job is leading him into a wrong direction. And so he's tugged by all these moral issues in the book. Um, and so uh, when you read it, you read this book, you, you see these flashes come in from all different directions. So some seem very arcane, but, what, but they explain sort of what the book is about and how he struggles. Um, so that's, anyway, that's one of the ideas of the book, okay? And then, this is another story I'll read, because I really like this one. You need to see my face? I forgot what I look like. I, I can't use it if it's down anymore. Do you need the mic? Do you guys need the mic? Can you guys hear me without the mic? You like the mic? He likes it. What? Okay, Nicole, I can't read the book if it's down any farther. I lost my place five times in that thing. Okay, all right, okay. Um, okay, all right. So one thing I was trying to do in this book 
was recreate elements from the period, historical elements, and uh, one of the big stories, besides World War I, was the, uh, was the sinking of the Titanic. And this, uh, uh, this month is the 100th anniversary of sinking of the Titanic. So it's kind of funny that, I, that uh, my book comes out just in time for this, <laughs> okay? Because I made this story up probably, I don't know, 18 years ago. Uh, the little story I'm going to read. I made it about 18 years ago. Uh, I made it in my head. And, uh, and then I had to wait to certain, when I reached the part of the book I was going to use it. And then I had to research. Uh, there weren't a lot of books on Titanic at the time. The time I wrote this story, there's only Walter Lord's A Night to Remember and another book called uh, Maiden Voyage. And so I got the maps of the ship. I looked on both, both uh, accounts and another account of the Titanic sinking written uh, contemporaneously to the, to, to the sinking. Um, and... Uh, and then I made up the story. So I had to figure out logistics of the whole thing. So it's all, so everything in this story is basically true, except for my main character. Okay, so, all right. So Harry Hennessy, my main character in the book, by the way, is, uh, he's at a huge Gatsby-like party at a brownstone mansion, a place uh, uh, owned by a guy named Horton Sylvester, who's not there, because they said he never attends any of his big parties. He's in London with his family. And uh, so my character, Harry, has seen an old gentleman wander the, the brownstone terrace, smoking a cigarette, looking off in the distance. And then uh, an older, another old guy that Harry's met has come out and is, stalking, and is talking to Harry. And so finally, um, uh, Parkman looks at this guy, Francis Parkman, looks across the terrace and he says, uh, he says, uh, I see Howard still with us, Parkman observed, lowering his voice while nodding in the direction of the older gentleman by the shadow balustrade, in body if not in spirit. Who? Howard Guyberson. You've never met. No, Harry replied, once again eyeing the older gentleman as he smoked his cigarette in the dark, his pose stoic as the sphinx. Somehow he didn't appear to belong to this riotous crowd. Well, Howard is on the Titanic, you know. You're joking. Harry turned to face Parkman, his interest suddenly peaked. Aren't you? An absolutely tragic story, just horrible. Parkman, Parkman settled back against one of the stone urns. He took a short drag off his cigarette and tapped the ash off into the urn at his elbow. Of course, you remember that Howard Guyberson and Horton Sylvester were roommates in New Haven. Is that so? Yale man, eh? That's a crowd, all right. Long ago, Harry had aspired to an Eastern education. Sadly, he was neither rich nor smart enough. Yes, indeed. Parkman nodded proudly. Members in Wolf's Head, the Lizzie, football captains, rakes about campus. They were quite close back then. Best of friends, absolutely inseparable. In fact, after taking their degrees, they traveled together through Suez to Java and Peking and Odot on summer holiday and found themselves fighting side by side with Captain Jack Myers and the American legation at the Tartar Wall during the rebellion. Later, when Horton married Phoebe, Howard served as his best man, a favor Horton res returned for Howard the next spring when he married Lydia Chase at Stanford. As the Sylvester family owned a fair interest in White Star Line at the time, Horton's wedding gift to Howard and Lydia was a first-class booking on the maiden voyage at the Titanic. Good grief. Parkman shrugged, flicked more ash into the stoner. Passage was reserved a year in advance, and there were no clairvoyants in the booking office. He smiled wanly. I suppose not, but for heaven's sake, it's just incredible to think back on it now. Yes, it is. Parkman nodded. You see, by the January following their marriage, Lydia had given birth to twins, Ariel and Karina, at London, where she and Howard had been living since shortly after the wedding. He had employment with an investment firm on Threadneedle Street while intending to return triumphantly to America aboard the Titanic with his new family in April. Horton had even arranged a gala homecoming for Howard and Lydia at Newport for the evening after their arrival. Nearly everyone they knew had expected to attend. 
Parkman finished with a cigarette snuffed out the butt. He stared across the terrace at Guyberson, who had taken on the appearance of a dark specter haunting the upper balustrade in the pale moon shadow of the Palladian brownstone. Lowering his voice, Parkman said, Horton had secured a stateroom for Howard and Liddy on the B-deck with most of the smart crowd who were returning from holiday in the Mediterranean. J.J. Astor himself and young Madeline Force had been, just been in Cairo. It had been a wonderful spring and all agreed that a crossing in the Titanic was quite the way to end the season abroad. Of course, this made for another simply marvelous party. The Wideners and, Ry the Wideners and Ryersons were there, remember, and Archie Butt, Clarence Moore, Francis Millette, Henry Harris, Washington Dodge, Guggenheim, many others of the old register. Although every evening the, the best crowd would gather in the dining saloon. Although it was April and quite cool, the passage was calm and clear, very accommodating for Lydia, who was in fact deathly afraid of the sea. On the first day out of Queenstown, they'd made the acquaintance of Mrs. William Graham and her daughter Margaret, and passed much of the voyage with them in the palm court and the writing room. Meanwhile, Howard paraded about like a schoolboy from the smoking room up to the boat deck in the gym, returning to the lounge for a round of bridge with Butt and Moore and Ryerson, then dashing down to the racket court where he thrashed a variety of opponents for three days running. Every afternoon following dinner, he and Lydia joined the Ryersons and the Grahams for one of Wallace Hartley's concerts. Lydia particularly loved Franz Lehard's Merry Widow Waltz, and her Hartley's orchestra played it for her every day. Parkman drew another cigarette from a silver case and lit it, flicking the match into the stone urn. That Sunday, the 14th, Lydia came down with the sniffles after singing hymns in the dining saloon and decided to take supper in the stateroom. Failing to persuade Lydia that he ought to stay with her, Howard went off to attend George Widener's dinner party with Captain Smith, the Thayers, Archie Butt, and the Carters. Indeed, all the smart crowd appeared, and the sumptuous meal made for a splendid evening of high spirits and revelry. After dinner, Howard looked in on Lydia and the children who'd fallen asleep, then joined everyone in the Louis Cez Lounge on A-deck, where the orchestra was giving a concert, The Tales of Hoffman. The night was quite beautiful, you may recall. Moonless brilliant, utterly clear. When the performance of the Barcarolle was concluded with a rousing ovation, Howard Fire followed Widener and Moore and several others to the smoking room for cigars and a few last stories. Highballs were generally the order of the hour, but as it was late, Howard satisfied himself with a hot lemonade, and after staying well past 11, just to hear another, Clarence, another of Clarence Moore's extravagant adventures in the mountains of Virginia, he returned to the stateroom. Parkman took a drag off the cigarette, exhaling slowly and tapping the ash in the urn. He continued, his voice somber now. Howard had been in bed reading from Kipley's recessional when the iceberg was struck. He hardly felt it, nor did many others of the early-to-bed crowd on B-deck. Just a rumble of sorts, a queer vibration from the starboard side. Neither Lydia nor the children awakened. Curious, Howard threw an overcoat atop his pajamas and went out to investigate. Though the night was clear, by now it was also bitterly cold on deck, yet Howard saw passengers from steerage frolicking about the starboard well deck with chunks of ice. He also joined a crowd supposedly watching the guilty iceberg itself disappear to stern. No one thought much of it. After all, what sort of damage might a silly piece of ice inflict on the mighty Titanic, eh? After an hour or so of exploring about, discussing with several members of the crew and his own crowd when the ship might get underway again, Howard returned to the stateroom where he found Lydia awake, tending to the children, both of whom had apparently caught her sniffles. While they debated whether or not to summon a physician, their steward came to the door and asked if they might put on their life belts and join everyone on the boat deck. Lydia resisted the idea, arguing that the cold would harm the children and that she herself had a fever. When Howard explained, however, that the ship was listing and it might actually become necessary to leave her, Lydia was persuaded to dress and go up. Although she was frightened, Lydia helped Howard bundle the twins into her own sable stoles and together they carried them up to the boat deck where practically everyone they knew on board milled about in various states of fine evening dress augmented by winter clothes. As Howard and Lydia arrived on deck, the first rocket went off from the starboard side of the bridge. 
Parkman puffed on his cigarette while staring across the dark at Guyberson, who had yet to move from the far balustrade. A light breeze stirred in the cypress. Harry only vaguely recalled what came next. It seemed so long ago. Of course, as everybody knew what rockets at sea meant, Liddy herself began to weep and asked Howard to take her back to the stateroom. That he refused to do, which only made matters worse. Fortunately, Hartley's band had set up in a corner of the lounge nearby and began a spirited ragtime melody that seemed to provide the necessary calm and allowed the stewards to begin loading the lifeboats with a minimum of fuss. Howard brought Lydia and the children to boat number eight and kissed her goodbye. She refused to leave without him. However, the steward for eight, John Hart, pointed out that no men would be allowed in the lifeboats until all women and children were safely loaded. Lydia argued with him, as did many of the other women, and only when Howard assured her that he'd step into the first available boat did she consent to go. Even then, with a seat waiting in the boat beside Margaret and Mrs. Graham, Lydia persisted in not stepping foot off the Titanic until Howard left to find another boat. With that last promise secured, they embraced, and Howard kissed the children and Lydia once again and hurried to stern. As Howard crossed the promenade to starboard, he saw the last of the rockets go up. Steerage passengers were coming up on deck now, wandering aimlessly about, nobody to guide them. Howard took it upon himself to escort a group of young Irish ladies to the aft lifeboats, then proceeded forward where he saw J.J. Astor and Madeline sitting on a pair of mechanical horses in the gymnasium, examining a lifebelt that Astor had sliced open with his penknife. Ahead, Colonel Gracie and others were struggling with one of the collapsibles and not having much luck. Lifeboats seven and five were already in the water. Number three was sliding down. Down. Although Howard saw men in each of these boats, he hurried back across the promenade to port to see that Lydia was safely away. All the while, of course, Hartley's band continued to play cheerful ragtime airs, which remarkably kept spirits up. Howard saw Harry Widener there chatting at the railing with William Carter. Both eight and six had already gone. Widener informed Howard that Archie Butt, Moore, and Ryerson had gone back in for a round of bridge. The rest of the old crowd, Astor, Yates, George Widener, Ben Guggenheim, were still about somewhere intending to go down like gentlemen. Trusting that Lydia and the children were safe, Howard returned to the starboard boat deck, determined to find a seat in one of the boats. Indeed, collapsible sea was just lowering when he arrived at the bow. Fortunately, Quartermaster Rowe gave Howard permission to climb aboard, then waved the Engelhart free of the ship. Gently sobering up, Harry kept his eye on Guyberson, who had shifted his attitude slightly to the gray balustrade, his gaze focused somewhere into the cypress grove at the rear of the brownstone. Parkman spoke even more softly now. The sea was calm and black. Howard's Engelhart pulled easily away from the Titanic as the great ship dipped forward lower and lower into the water, her bow lights disappearing while Wallace Hartley's extraordinary orchestra played Autumn, and those who hadn't found space in the boats watched those who had from the railings. Eventually, you recall, the stern rose near nearly vertical, and nearly, and everything not fixed in place within the ship collided with a great roar, and hundreds of desperate souls threw themselves overboard into the icy waters, and the unsinkable Titanic foundered. Parkman took a brief drag off his cigarette and coughed harshly before continuing. While debate raged in the Engelhart over the wisdom of attempting to rescue those in the water, cries for help were all anyone could hear now. Howard watched the sea nearby for lifeboat number eight. Naturally, it was futile due to the dark. After the voice in the, from the water died away one by one, there were so many corpses in the waters about the Engelhart that for a while it became almost all but impossible to row. Boats drifted here and there during the night. Quartermaster Rowe led a prayer. 
Every so often, Howard tried calling to Lydia without success. Even in the boats, people died of the fierce cold well before the Carpathia arrived. That most did not seems almost remarkable now. In fact, a fellow survivor in the Englehart with Howard was none other than J. Bruce Eastmay himself, chairman of White Star, who was, of course, quite vilified later on for failing to do his duty and perish with a ship, as had Captain Smith and so many of his valiant crew. At dawn, Howard and collapsible Englehart Sea crossed the great ice field and reached the Carpathia. Several other boats were there already. Immediately after being helped up on deck, he began inquiring about number eight. He circled the Carpathia's deck twice before coming across Gladys Cherry and the Countess of Roth, both of whom he'd seen in eight when he left Lydia and the children. They told Howard, and Margaret Graham confirmed this an hour later, that Lydia had decided not to leave the Titanic without him and had simply taken the children and gotten off. That was the last anyone remembered seeing her. Parkman drew a, drew a deep breath and stared at Guyberson once more across the shadowed terrace, his stony figure posed against the balustrade. His beloved Lydia had most likely returned to the stateroom and waited for Howard to come back for her. She and the children had gone down with the ship. Until that moment, Harry hadn't really ever felt himself stirred by people from another world. It would be too pleasant to think they were so different he needn't be sympathetic. Now he felt graceless and faintly dissipated, reminded somehow of his own fluffy narcissism. Parkman shook his head sadly. Howard spent two years at a sanitarium in Connecticut. Only when Horton finally came for him did he begin to make appearances again. In the 17 years since, he's never remarried, nor has he ever returned to sea, though on each of Horton's crossings, at longitude 50 degrees 14 minutes west, Phoebe tosses a garland of roses overboard on Howard's behalf. Parkman snuffed out his cigarette on the rounded edge of the urn and let it fall inside. He looked Harry in the eye. The truth is, one couldn't count the times we've said to Howard, pull yourself together, old man. You've got to buckle down and get on with it. But, of course, it's never any use. As Horton said to a group of us just last Christmas, though Howard Guyberson's heart has continued to beat all these years, surely his life ended with his dear Lydia's that night aboard the Titanic. So, there you go. Um, okay, any questions about this? Uh, anything here? Thanks. Um, I really, this book basically took me, uh, of course I've worked on the whole book all at once, but all in all, probably, I don't know, I've worked on this book probably for 18 years. The entire Thousand Page book took me from beginning to end uh, about 10 years, and I've kind of fixed little things here and there. This one required most of the work. This is a very complicated book to do. The others, the, the one this side of Jordan was pretty easy. I think I changed one paragraph in it. And, and, and before publication, before I gave it to my editors, I changed like one sentence in both these books. This one I, I just took me like three months to fix and add and tight, tighten up and uh, um, and really sort of think about and add stuff to it. The, the effect of having children um, after the first draft of this book um, caused me to add many things and understand Harry's life with his family better than I had beforehand. So, in fact, uh, let me see, I have a thing about, uh, I put in, this is, this is a little observation I would never have written if I hadn't had children. So let me see where this is. Um, yeah, okay, 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 okay. Um, yes, okay, okay, okay. 
seems like I know my own book. I mean, I vaguely, <laughs> I vaguely know my book. But, um, oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Wow. It's, um, it's on the hill. Okay, 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 okay. And it is here. So, um, right, so Harry's wandering through the park and uh, is on his way to meet some girl and uh, this little teenage girl. And he he sees some kids. Uh, he sees some people come down. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, a late middle-aged man and woman, both in bright holiday attire, followed his children out of the followed the children out of the guards. Kids had run down the lawn, um, and and then I said, uh, as they came down the lawn, their children veered off from the fence at the dirt bluffs and ran, laughing in Harry and Pearl's direction toward the cement telescope platform. Missing his own children again, Harry wanted to watch them play for a while. It felt important. Somehow, once you start pretending you are not that man who mows his lawn on Saturdays and tucks his kids in bed at night, they take it as if that doesn't mean anything to you. Yet, it means everything. You toss your own problems aside and tie a tail to a kite and race your little boy across a field with a wind at your back and nothing can touch you. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. It's all that really matters. Um, and then one last thing near the end of the book. This doesn't give anything away, okay? But I, I want to read this because I, I just like this. Something else I added because in writing a book, I spend a lot of time, and and sometimes you just, it takes a while to figure out what a book is really about. And uh, in this sense, I wrote this last paragraph. When Harry Hennessy was a boy. His father had a motto framed on the wall above his oak desk at the downtown mercantile building that read, It's easy enough to be pleasant when life goes by like a song, but the man worthwhile is the man with a smile when everything goes dead wrong. During those years at the stockyards and along the selling road, through high times and low, Harry asked himself, Have I ever been pleasant enough to those I loved? What capacity of feeling sets any of us apart from another? I love my wife and my children and my sister and my mother. Their love is the foundation of my life. I owe them more than I can hope to repay. Can fidelity to a needful heart ever be constant? To be trusted is a greater compliment than to be loved. All summer long, he held a vivid memory of Marie sitting on the wisteria trait porch at Cedar Street in the lavender evening and his children's sleepy faces pressed to the glass of a second story window waiting for him to arrive from the train depot at the end of a long business trip. One night aboard the Sioux Line, he overheard a fellow from General Motors remark that our moral compass points to the penthouse or the notch house, but not both. It's a test of our character to detect the difference. To do something worthwhile during our brief time in the world means detecting the difference. He wondered, why do we so often fail ourselves? Is it so terrible to wake up each morning believing there's nothing more important that day than to let those we love know how much they mean to us? Love is our last best hope of enduring the tragedies of this existence. Without love, everything becomes uncertain and the end of each day seems to stretch away out of reach. So, anyway, okay, so enough of that. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Um, I was looking at that Huffington Peace post you wrote. Oh, yeah. Post piece. Um, and I was wondering if, since you talked a lot about these characters from the 20s and uh -huh. piece, is that, were the, the characters in this book the inspiration, or were they pulled from history and then inspired you to write this epic, or were they, is this like something that you 
came about? Did this come out of your brain? Oh. And then you did the research, or how did that work? Well, okay, so this novel is basically, is the whole thing is based roughly on my maternal grandfather and grandmother. So my mom and uh, grandmother, mom, and two aunts went down to Carthage, Texas, as my grandfather stayed in the Twin Cities and worked in this transferred storage thing. So that's the genesis of the whole idea. And uh, so, in fact, I dedicate the book uh, for my grandfather, Henry Halverson, whose eloquent story is ours, too. Um, and so, yeah, it's roughly the structure of the book is based on that idea. Uh, and but, but again, I got the idea of writing this huge novel about America, and I said it in the 20s because it's the time of my dad growing up, and also I liked the, the books and the writing from the time, and I thought it was interesting how America was making that transition from uh, uh, rural to urban. And uh, those reasons sort of came together to let me have me write about the 20s. Um, and the other thing to remember in this book, by the way, is it, we get the, you guys watch, and everybody sees, uh, was it Boardwalk Empire, and they would see Untouchables, and they see the artists, and all these things. Like, the whole 20s is all about the jazz age and everything, but it's not really completely. There are a lot of different things went on at the time. Um, there was a big KKK revival up in Indiana at the time. Uh, it was a, sort of a disaster. It was terrible. And, and of course, the, um, uh, a lot of immigrant persecutions. Uh, immigrant, uh, um, immigration, essentially, for, for certain peoples from Europe, came to an end at the time. They, uh, we decided to exclude people from the Mediterranean, okay? uh, people from uh, Eastern Europe. But people from England and, and Ireland and whatever still basically come on in Norway. Scandinavians come on in. We don't want these, but we don't want these people. Um, of course, it was a time of uh, first uh, you know, women could vote, okay, and hairstyles. Uh, the dresses came up and hairstyles changed. A woman in 1919 who cut her hair short, bobbed her hair, would not be allowed in certain public buildings. Okay, not floozies. They're not coming in. Okay, um, there was the great moral exper uh, um, experiment of uh, prohibition, uh, which uh, really began with a women's uh, um, women's Christian Temperance Union. But it was it, it was a forty-year fight to get a a liquor banned, and the, the the essential reason for it was that family life was being eroded substantially by alcoholism, rampant or alcoholism. So was the problem in, in for employers with employees being drunk all the time. And, and uh, uh, the workplace became dangerous, many injuries, and people just tired of people not showing up. And uh, uh, so in those ways, prohibition was uh, extremely successful. Um, and the crime element is interesting because I read three books about prohibition written during prohibition. And the crime element was, as a discussion, was really low on the on the issues. The other, the biggest problem was uh, deaths by alcohol poisoning, uh, because home brew, right? Uh, who knows what they're? In fact, there's a, a joke I use in here. Our character says, uh, 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 you know, like, say, Harry, what are you drinking? Uh, I wish I knew. Okay, so uh, um, yeah, and, and and then the other problem was prohibition got overturned. They said because the the wets took over from the dries, who instigated uh, the Volstead Act and prohibition, so the wrong people were in charge. Um, so and, and the other thing is, you always hear oh, more people drank during prohibition than before. That's not true. Drinking went down during prohibition and stayed down after. And a vestige we have of it is we talk about going to a bar now, not a saloon. And saloons seem kind of quaint, but it was very conscious change. Towns had dozens 
of saloons. You can't even imagine, nothing like it now. Okay, uh, and so that connotation um, had to change, so they called them bars. And now saloons seem so quaint, but that's really what they all were. There's just very conscious change. So a lot of things were right, advent of the automobile, huge, huge popular stars in popular culture, Babe Ruth and uh, Douglas Fairbanks and Red Grange and Charles, Charles Lindbergh, uh, Lucky Lindy um, dances. It's just a lot of things going on. And then, of course, there was the, uh, the famous Scopes monkey trial in Dayton. Uh, Lots of, you have to see it's a confluence of a lot of ideas. And so it was a, it was a very um, vibrant decade. And also everybody was tired of, uh, uh, as a result of World War I. Which was in hindsight thought of as uh, uh, John Dos Passos called it the the graft of the century. Ultimately, people looked back on the war and thought it was the phoniest thing that ever happened. Uh, when they because they realized they'd been duped. The Germans were not that bad. They weren't they weren't eating babies in Belgium and the whole thing. They people felt they'd just been manipulated in this war just for the armament manufacturers. It's, they're the only ones who got rich. They're the only ones benefited. The British the 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 lifeblood of the British Empire died on the fields of France and the British were never a great empire after that. They, they lost almost an entire generation of people. And the United States, we lost uh, 100,000 were killed in seven months of fighting on the Western Front. So it was pretty, pretty much a disaster. And so everyone wanted a break. They just wanted to have a big party. That's what they had, a decade-long party. And when it ended, um, there was a big hangover, and then it led to the uh, crash, right? And, uh, and, so, and it's kind of been forgotten. So during, I thought it was interesting, during the, the Dole-Clinton uh, campaign, uh, they made it sound as if the 20th century began with prohibition. And nobody talked about what happened before in the Roaring Twenties and World War I and all that. So, so it's kind of been forgotten now. And it comes back and just kind of quaint people in fedoras and, and, and flappers and Tommy guns. You know, but there's a lot more to the 20s than that. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, nine? Uh, well, well, all together, considering uh, I was still editing this, I edited this last year. So, so what, that was, what year is this, 2011? So, uh, yeah, well, I worked off and on on this book for 19 years. So, but, and I know that you do massive research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, right, well, uh, I'm pretty able to sort of turn it on and off. Uh, I, I wrote most of the book up in my house, uh, Victorian up in Nevada City, California, it's a gold mining town. So my house built in, 19, or built in 1859, so I have antique furniture, so there's, yeah, I was kind of surrounded by stuff. I surrounded myself with books. Oh, sure, I had an incredible amount of books um, to get the uh, names of clothing and uh, toiletries and, and all sorts of stuff. I, I found a, a Montgomery Ward catalog from 1922. It's kept really careful turning the pages now. And I had, sure, I had books uh, on uh, 20s automobiles and trains and interurban trolleys and uh, as I said prohibition and and uh, architecture this book has a, a creation of an uh, of, I call it the Empyrean building in the center of the city a big art deco kind of thing pre uh, sort of predating uh, but having hints of the Chrysler building and the Empire State building I call it the Empyrean building that's another thing I had to write this I had to make up the name of a skyscraper I never named the city but I had to 
name it. So, you know, I'm thinking, well, I don't have anything like the Chrysler Building. Or, and then I thought, well, I got an idea. How about this? The Empyrean Building. Empyrean is a word, it means the highest point of heaven. So the Empyrean Building is at, on Pantheon Avenue at Elysium Plaza. <laughs> and it has, uh, there is the, uh, what is it? What is it? It's called the, oh, the Seventh Heaven Club on the 99th floor of the Empyrean Building. Yeah, and so there's this, I have, I have it open up and uh, they have a, a Gershwin performs Rhapsody in Blue uh, with Paul Whiteman's orchestra and, uh, and the party goes high and higher into the building until they release, oh yeah, they release um, uh, a thousand helium balloons tinted gold to resemble champagne bubbles. And then, and then and that the party gets up and people are throwing glasses off the top and disappear in the clouds on the way down. So I have this, yeah, I have this massive, and I, you know, I have, yeah, the speed lines and everything in the, uh, in the, in the, elevators, and I have all this, and I also, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, reference to people and events from the time that you either know or you don't. I never explain anything. The idea is, if you're reading this book, that you are invisible, you've been transported back into the 20s, and you walk around with these people and you hear conversations. You'll know some stuff and you won't. Okay, I never, I don't believe in pandering to the brain. I don't explain anything. Never do that. You have to, if you don't know who a person is or what, then you just look it up. There was a, a sign, my character's in the black part of the city, and says, watch the clouds, Julian is arriving from the skies. And Julian was the Black Lindbergh. He was a stuff very, yeah, he flew across the Atlantic after Lindbergh did. Totally forgotten now. But that would be a sign you would, you'd see that. And so I have advertisements and I have, uh, oh, lots of stuff, sure. Because I, wow, for one of the chapters in this book, in fact, the one with the Titanic, I read, took notes from or consulted 58 books. So, uh, uh, I don't know, it, Kathy, it just became like second language for me. I got to learn, I, I used to how people talked and uh, say swell a lot and all those things. Um, you just walk out of that world and go to Ralph's. Yeah, sure, sure. And then I come back and go in. Yeah, I can turn it on and off. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I really thought about it when I was walking around. But it's, the book is so complicated that I can't, uh, I don't like taking notes. I, I don't like, I didn't like it would tape. I thought, I thought I would do something or stop my car. But the thing is that, that it's better for me to turn my mind off. Because otherwise I, uh, seriously, I'd ride along, get an idea, pull over the car and write it down. Then I'd drive another, you know, 100 yards, pull over. So, uh, same thing, going to bed at night. I would try not to think about the book. Because I would keep having to turn the light on, make notes. Uh, it had to be a really good idea for me to do it. And I finally just told myself, just don't think about it. And then I would go to the computer, turn it on, and then go back in the world and start writing it. And just kind of move along. I was not a super fast writer. I'm like, it's like the tortoise and the hare thing. And it's like the tortoise. And just move along, move along, move along. Try to write a page or two a day. And I didn't know it was going to be a thousand page book. I didn't know it was going to take me ten years to write. Yeah. Did, did you write, were you, were, were you devoted to these, this trilogy during these whole 19 years? Did you write other things? Uh, only after I sold the, sold the books did I, I actually, I'm still editing this, I started writing a crime book uh, that's done now, uh, set in uh, San Francisco in 1962, but then I, I've been, it's, that's taken me kind of like five or six years to write because I've been doing the editing and publishing and touring for these books. But basically, yeah, otherwise I just worked on these. I didn't, I don't, I, I also create canvas big enough that I can use all my ideas. That's sort of my, my goal as a writer. To, so I don't write little short stories and I'll get off you know, the strikes. I, I'm really sort of focused on one thing. Well, that kind of leads into my question because I've read your first two books that have been re released. Yeah. yeah. The first one, Crossing Jordan, is... This side of Jordan. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. You got it. Uh, <laughs> you know it better than me. I hope. Uh, I hope. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it could be doubtful. 
it takes place on a different plane, whereas the second one and, and this one are, are seem more tied. So my question is, when you started writing, uh, how did you did you start with one and then move to the other? Or did you have the big picture when you started off, or did you discover the big picture on the way? Oh, they're all one book. It's all one book. So uh, I would I wrote um, I wrote the first chapter in this book. Just see if I could write something set in a city because I usually write, my first book was all rural and I always write rural stuff because I grew up in the countryside in Northern California. And then uh, I tried writing the first chapter for what became the side of Jordan. It just didn't work. It wasn't very good, so I just tossed it out. And then I wrote the first chapter for the what's the last row of summary. It's in the book almost verbatim. So the way I wrote this book was uh, uh, write a chapter in this, the chapter in the next, chapter in the next. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. Um, uh, so yeah, sometimes I would go away one of the storylines for two years, and I had to pick it up again. The only time I wrote back to back was at the very end. I wrote the last two chapters for the last rose of summer because I had the voice, and it was the hardest voice for me to recapture. So I went boom, boom, wrote those. Then I wrote the last chapter for, um, I think I wrote the last chapter for this, and then the last chapter for this side of Jordan because uh, it was more complicated. I think I had the idea for this a long time. I'm just remembering. It was a long time ago. Seriously, in the in the 90s, early 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. I talked to my dad a lot, and I had a, I, um, I just had a couple of people. A professor at UCSB, I used to Santa Barbara. I would uh, have as a writing mentor. You know, he was, one, he was my, on my graduate committee uh, for my master's program, and uh, he was a writer himself. And he was good because we don't write it all like short story writer. And I would, uh, he would say, well, given that what you're trying to do, this is how well you're doing it. But I had to have as a mentor, I've had two writing mentors in my time, uh, Jerry Rose, late Jerry, Jerry died two years ago. Um, my writing mentors, both, one was at Sonoma State, and, one, and both were on my programs. Uh, they're both uh, PhDs in literature, both professors, and both writers. So they became really good. Because I, I can't have a writer... I can't. I couldn't have a mentor who didn't read, uh, and it was really hard for me to share books. So like you're asking Tom. I had sure I would go to the Santa Barbara Writers Conference and read stuff, but seriously, uh, I got criticized because they said, "Well, it just sounds like you're just showing off. You're just polishing. You're not like you're not really asking for anybody's help." And it's like, uh, "Well, that's true <laughs> because I don't want anybody's help. I don't believe in art by committee at all. I'm gonna read to 30 people. I haven't tell me how to write my book. I've been thinking about it. So, and then these workshops, these late night workshops, like sometimes from nine till four in the morning. I'm listening to people read for five hours. Yeah, it's my turn. I'm gonna read it, you know, and I'm also gonna read something good because I don't want to hear any jackass comments from people about my book. Because, because seriously, I spent so much time reading, reading and researching. What's somebody gonna say? They can comment on the story, but it's not like I don't think about it. I, I already have an idea what I'm doing. I just kind of, um, I would sort of listen to impressions. I got, but you hear, get weird readings. Somebody came up to me after the Titanic story. I read a long time ago. And she said, uh, you know, I just want to tell you, I really like the story, but um, I am not sympathetic. I didn't feel sorry at all for all those rich people who drowned. <laughs> okay. <Hi>. Fair enough. <laughs> what? I just, I was like flabbergasted. And then, and then another person wanted to really be helpful was telling me, you know, when you tell, when you're, and it's about the same story. I hear like two weird comments. The person was like, you know, all you have is uh, Parkman telling this story and looking at Harry and smoking the cigarette, you know, and once in a while they look off at, at Guyberson. But w w don't you think it'd be better for your writing to have, see a lot of other things going on at the same time? Uh, okay, I would do that. 
Okay, a lot in my book. But for this story, I wanted... Yes, you see the thing. So the person's kind of an idiot anyway, but but <laughs> point is, the point is that, that it's a deliberate, it, it's done deliberately like that, so Harry is eye-to-eye -eye with Parkman. Okay, so we're just focused on that. Yeah, so the idea that uh, in this big party, there's tons of stuff going on all the time, so this narrow the focus just like that. It wasn't an accident I did like this. And I know you're supposed to do that in writing, and I do it in the other 900 pages in the book, okay? But not in these, like, eight or whatever. Sorry. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, but you're right, Tom. That's a good question. Um, I always had to have people read. Okay, that's, oh, yeah. So I have different people read for different reasons. I had a journalism teacher. suffered a stroke a couple years ago, so she, I can't really talk to her much anymore. But she was, uh, she, I, she would read for grammar for me. And I have other people read just for story. I have a friend, uh, a writer, editor, who was in a school with me my sophomore year in a private school. Um, really smart guy. This guy's got a bachelor's degree in English. Uh, he's got an MFA in creative writing and a PhD in American literature from the University of Kansas. He's an editor, he's a writer, he's a teacher, plays in a rock band, really smart guy. And he would read the book. And uh, I just had him read. One, he needed the money. And so, you know, I was helping him that way. And the other was because um, he would give, he, he gave the most thoughtful readings of these, th each of these three books. So he wrote, did these write-ups from like 20 pages of ideas and concepts and ways to, and he improved, uh, he improved the Harry book. Uh, his, his, he, he didn't really have much impact on this side of Jordan, and a little bit in the, in the last part of summer, but a lot in this one, because he just told me, he, I, he gave me suggestions, I put them on a notepad next to my computer, it says, what, what does Harry feel? What about the children and a couple other things? But those are the main ones because he's really big on interior characters, and he and I don't really care about character. He all he cares about character. So so because he knew that was the least of my interests, he made me focus on it. Okay, and so in every scene at any time, what does Harry feel? What does Harry feel? That's why that thing with the boy and the, and the kite and the children it would never have been written if I hadn't met him, and of course if I had hadn't had the children. Um, so um, yeah, you're always carried along by people, but I, I never I just had a very small group of people I would consult and uh, uh, I just I wasn't interested in just like well what do you think of this but I would I, I mean I was some writers don't share this stuff with anybody they don't believe in it a writer we know Sid Stiebel doesn't believe in showing anything till it's done I don't really care about that at all because they're worried like well I'll get distracted or some writers like telling their whole book and they never get it written that was not a problem for me and I could read from my book constantly it had nothing to do with this as I was telling you Kathy I, I just was able to um, go to the computer and work Anything else to me, I could, I could read, I talked about my book for an hour. It would not inhibit my writing whatsoever. Nothing, because of my dad, right? My dad didn't believe in writer's block. He would say, writer's block, you can appreciate this, Kathy. Only amateurs get writer's block. Professionals can't afford it, right? So uh, that was really good advice for me because I never got writer's block. I realized it's just phony. You just have to write. So if it's crappy, so what? You know, then you can improve it. You're always better having something on the page than nothing. So I would just if nothing's happening. You just write anyway, and then fix it later. Fix it, fix it, fix it. So you know, anything else? Nice. Uh, is that oh, okay, Jane? Um, you're gonna have this next. Yeah, yeah. So, how is that going to be? Are you going to do that? Are you gonna, is it going to be completely different than the original? No. No, no, no. Again, when you read the book, it's you read cha change chapters, change storylines. I just have, I can put the whole book together right now. All books edited. I have a first person. Uh, 
I have first-person prologue, four first-person vignettes, and then a first-person epilogue that ends a book called Republic of Dreams. And uh, that's, uh, I, could, I could do it. I actually should do it. I was supposed to do it last summer. And you know what? I just forgot, which sounds kind of funny. I forgot to put the book back together, but I did. Because Fanographics would like to, well, there is, a, there, is a, there is a technical difficulty in that there are a couple mistakes in this side of Jordan and in last row summer. I haven't found any in here yet, and I could fix them. But the books are in PDF files, so I need to have them find, uh, I need to, I, oh I know, yeah, here's what it is. They have to turn the PDF file back into a Word file so I can manipulate it. And, and so they'll send me back, they'll send me them back, and then I'll, I'll assemble them the way they're supposed to be, um, which is kind of tricky. Then so I'll take one from this, and I also have, I have to look at the manuscript of the book. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't printed the book out in what, 10 years now. I have to look at it and see, just try to refresh my memory which order I place the things. Although I think I already looked at and saw the, the way I originally had it now, I don't think I would start that, like the order of the chapters, the stories. I think there was a change I was gonna do. Makes more sense. Is it possible to read the book? I mean, must you read from beginning to end to appreciate the, the fullness of the story, or is it possible to read them? Oh, read these? Oh, yeah. There is no order. It doesn't matter which you. Yeah, they're, it's fine. Uh, yeah, you read the whole thing. You see how it all fits because it's chronological. But, but bear in mind that say one of the books will have beginning of July and the other will have end of July and whatever. But, but as far as these three books, which one to read first, anything or what? If that's the question, it makes no difference whatsoever. Um, they all happen simultaneously. So uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. I just did a TV interview with somebody a couple of weeks ago who thought he had that clear. And then he realized, then he suddenly realized on the air in my interview that he had thought that when the book is together, the books, the whole books themselves are done sequentially. First, but I said, no. He was, yeah, I was trying to figure out like what do we call this kind of book. It's just a novel. It's changed storylines. What? He said, oh, now I get it. I didn't understand it all the time. For some reason, it's complicated for people to get. Because they're used to the idea of trilogy. Because it's not a trilogy. A trilogy implies that there's a sequence of stories. There's not a sequence of stories. It's just one book I broke into three books. Um, so again, this side of Jordan I broke apart first. I took out chapters, something like 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, and 18. And then I put them on the computer together and looked at them to see if they would even work as a book. And they did. So then I realized, but I couldn't do the other two because it's husband and wife. And then I realized that uh, the husband and wife are, uh, they talk about each other so much that it was easy to do. So this is the last one. It's only, look, this is only the last one because it was not, it was a, I told my, told my editor it's a train wreck. Okay, I need to fix it. He would have published the whole thing together at once. I said, no, I don't, I don't want to, I, I need to fix a big town. It's a mess. And so let's just do this side of Jordan. It's perfect as it is. And the last row of summer is pretty good. And it'll give me time to fix this. So that's really the only reason it was published like this. Although there's sort of, theoretically, an advantage of having the books out separately. You can sell them, sell more copies or whatever. I'm not sure it really makes any difference, but I do like them in separate books too. It's kind of funny, but they need to be, they're all one book. And the vision of the, of the city all makes sense. The whole book makes, the whole thing makes more sense as far as this vision of what the 20s are like. And, and the great American novel idea, right? I don't think, I mean, basically my agent, uh, Lucas Hunt, uh, back in Long Island said uh, that, he uh, said what I feel is that the whole is greater than any of the parts. But the parts are still fun. I still really like this side of Jordan. I kind of like the idea of a short book. It's kind of fun to read. and It's a nice book, right? I think it's, I, it's, I like that little dwarf. Or dad's favorite character. Anyway, thank you everybody for coming. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.